Well, it's good to see you here again this morning as we continue considering in our study the Bible, racism, and social justice. I hope the first couple of times we've been together have been helpful to you. Um, but today we return to continue our study here and looking in the Old Testament. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Oh, Father, please help us and be with us that this will be more than a time where our Bibles are open, but you'll be at work through this to help us understand what it means for us to live under your justice as those who have been called to carry out justice in this fallen and sinful world. So we pray this will be an equipping time, this will be an encouraging time, this will be a time that will help each of us moving forward to practice discernment as we continue to carry out all that you've called us to do. So Father, we pray and ask for all these things today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, through our study so far on the Bible, racism, and social justice, We've looked at our God as a just God who has created us in his image to be a just people towards each other. But when mankind rebelled against God in sin, we've seen that relational hostility entered the world and has led to injustice and oppression among mankind, including the oppression of ethnic groups. But I also developed some definitions to help us continue in our study identifying four key concepts. First is the word justice itself. The justice is our fair and impartial treatment of others according to God's law. So we want to be clear in what we mean by justice. And it is, as we see there, our fair and impartial treatment of others according to God's law. This means, secondly, that injustice is its opposite, right? So injustice is our unfair and partial treatment of others in violation of God's law. Uh, but then we considered oppression, and after looking at oppression in Scripture, uh, came up with this definition for oppression, that oppression is favoring one group over another in society through the abuse of power. And then fourth, this means that ethnic oppression is favoring one ethnic group over another in society through the abuse of power. So, of course, if you've missed either of the previous lessons that we've had together, I'd encourage you to go back and watch them online. But today we'll be considering God's Old Testament people, Israel, and what his calling of them meant for the unfolding of justice in history. So let's begin by calling by considering the calling of Israel, because the history of Israel we find beginning in Genesis with God separating Abraham from the nations in order to bless the nations, right? And so we begin with Abraham being separated from the nations, and of course we can turn then to Genesis chapter 12, uh, returning to Genesis this week by looking at the first three verses. And while I know I recently completed a sermon series on the life of Abraham, it would be helpful for us to briefly reconsider God's calling of Abraham, who at this time was Abram, as he was called away from his country and his people. So, Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, we read, Now the Lord had said to Abram, 
Get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So in God's call to Abraham, we first read of his command to Abraham in verse 1, that he must leave his people and his land to a new land that God promises to him and his descendants. And then in verses 2 to 3, God makes seven promises, each beginning with, I will, God says. You see, his choice of Abraham was not because of anything in Abraham, but due to God's sovereign choice alone. Which is why when Joshua later spoke to Abraham's descendants, the nation of Israel, he said to them in Joshua 24, verse 2, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. So Abraham was a pagan idolater who is called by God to separate from his and his family's sinful idolatry of pagan worship to be the father of a new nation. And in calling Abraham, God enters into a covenant relationship with him. But now let's move further in Genesis 18 and look at Genesis 18, verses 17 and 19, because here we have God about to judge the people of Sodom and Gomorrah from their sin by raining down fire and brimstone from the heavens. But he decides to reveal what he is about to do to Abraham. So let's read of how Abraham and his descendants are supposed to live because of God's covenant promises here. Again, Genesis 18, verses 17 and 19. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing, since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they may keep the way of the Lord. And what is that way of the Lord? Again, verse 19. To do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. So according to verse 19, why has God known Abraham? He may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord, doing righteousness and justice. See this continuing then among Abraham and his descendants. Well, God does bless Abraham and his wife Sarah with the son Isaac, and his covenant promises then are passed on from Abraham to Isaac, and then from Isaac to his son Jacob. And Jacob marries two wives moving forward here through Genesis, Leah and Rachel, who give him then 12 sons. And God appeared before Jacob and wrestled with Jacob through the night when God said to Jacob in Genesis 32, verse 28, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Which is why Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob become the fathers or the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel, because each of Jacob's sons becomes a tribe who is descended from Abraham. And while they had been living in the land that God had promised them, a great famine came, and they could no longer support themselves there. So they leave this land to dwell in Egypt, 
where God preserved them through Jacob's son, Joseph. Now, obviously, I'm covering a lot of history very quickly here this morning, but it's central to the life of the nation of Israel, which becomes the focus of God's work through the Old Testament. But here's what we see. As sin spread through human history, so did the practice of slavery. This is why it was a common practice throughout the ancient world and why we so often read about slavery in Scripture. So when we then come to the next book of the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, we learn what happens next in Egypt. So let's go to Exodus, the first chapter, and look together at chapter 1, the beginning of the chapter, verses 8 to 14. Here we read of what happens after Pharaoh, the king over Egypt, dies. So, we read, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh... Uh, supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were uh, in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor." So what happens here to the Hebrew people in Egypt? Ethnic oppression, right? Ethnic oppression. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, abused his power by favoring the Egyptians over the Hebrews and enslaving them in hard bondage. Of course, we all know what happens next. Since God promised to bless the nations through Abraham and his descendants, he raises up Moses to deliver them from their slavery in Egypt and to set them free to inherit the land promised to the patriarchs. Because God had hardened Pharaoh's heart, he stubbornly refused to let the people go, the Hebrew people go, when Moses came to him and asked for their release, which is why God then sends ten plagues on Egypt to show his superiority over their false gods in his judgment against the Egyptians. And he protects his people from these plagues until they are finally let go to leave Egypt. But let's listen to this summary in Exodus chapter 12, verses 40 to 41. Now, the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, on that very same day, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Now, there is some debate over when these 430 years began, since Jacob and his family came into the land of Egypt 215 years before Israel's exodus from Egypt. But as a side note, I think that when you include Abraham among Israel and begin with his experience in Egypt, these times become easily reconcilable. In any case, what do we see here through the exodus? That God chose to save his people from slavery in Egypt, freeing them from the ethnic oppression which they had endured under the heavy bondage of the Egyptians. 
And why did God release them from this bondage? Well, now we come to Exodus chapter 19. So let's turn to Exodus 19, verses 3 to 6. Because as Israel is free, they come to approach a mountain, Mount Sinai, in the wilderness there where God speaks to his people through Moses. And what does he say here in Exodus 19? We read, And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you, uh, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for the earth is mine." And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So because of God's faithfulness to them, now they are to obey his covenant and be a special treasure to God above all people. And God will set them apart as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. See, they are to be separated from the nations as a contrast community from the nations because they will be God's people living in God's land under God's rule. But how will they know God's rule? How will they obey God's voice and keep his covenant? Well, what comes next in Exodus chapter 20? The Ten Commandments. While Moses is on Mount Sinai in God's presence, God reveals his law for his people. So we read of him being given two tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments written by the finger of God himself. We go on then to see how God's law regulates all of their society from their government to their worship. And it is by keeping this law that the Lord will bless them in the land and show the nation, nations what righteousness and justice looks like. So unlike the nations around them, Israel will be a righteous people according to God's law, and they will be a just people treating others fairly and impartially according to God's law. This is why Moses reminds Israel of God's law in Deuteronomy, as Israel is about to enter the promised land 40 years later. So let's go forward then to Deuteronomy. Consider Deuteronomy here. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5. To eight, listen to what God says to them here, again, through Moses. So Deuteronomy 4, 5 to 8, God says to them, Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me. Sorry, this is Moses speaking. Um, Moses speaking for God here. Uh, that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore, be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us, for whatever reason we may call upon him? And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you this day? Do you see what we're to find then from the people of Israel through the law? 
that they are to live righteously and justly according to God's law in the sight of the nations, so that these nations will then be drawn into covenant with God in repentance and faith. That's why God separates them to be a contrast community from the nations. So when Israel obeys God's law, they are blessed as they portray God's righteousness and justice before the nations. But when they disobey God's law, they are cursed by failing to show God's righteousness and justice to the nations. Right? So we've considered then the calling of Israel. But next, let's look more closely at the social ethics of Israel. What are the what is the ethical standard that God required of his people in Israel society? Well, again, let's consider some additional scriptures. First, we see the requirement of justice for God's people. And there's two central passages that summarize how Israel is to be set apart as God's people. The first is Isaiah 1, verses 16 to 17. You can turn there. As this book begins, God has, of course, raised up the prophet Isaiah to speak to the nation of Israel in light of their living according to God's law. And uh, what does God say to them here through Isaiah? Well, let's read these verses together. Isaiah 1, verses 16 and 17. God says through Isaiah, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. So how's Israel supposed to live? They must no longer sin and do evil, but make themselves clean through repentance and faith so they will learn to do good to seek justice, and to rebuke the oppressor. Again, they must not live as the sinful nations around them, but they must live as a contrast community which upholds God's law in fairness and without partiality. Well, the second central passage may be the most frequently quoted in the Old Testament, and that's Micah 6, verse 8. So we can turn there to Micah towards the end of the Old Testament. Now, many of us may have already had this verse memorized due to an excellent song by Stephen Curtis Chapman, released a number of years ago, called The Walk. But in this chapter, God pleads with Israel through Micah to return to him and recommit to living as his covenant people under the law that he has given them. And what does he say through the prophet Micah? Again, Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? So first, God has shown his people what is good through the law, which is why they have no excuse. He has given them the standard of righteousness that they are to live by. But second... The Lord requires his people to live this way, which means that this lifestyle is not an optional pursuit or a way of life that only their government religious leaders needed to practice. But all of Israel was required to live this way. And what are God's requirements of his people? Well, there's three commands given. Do justly, love mercy, 
and walk humbly with your God. So again, justice is required among the people of Israel. But let's take a closer look at what this justice looks like. And for the practice of justice, we need to look more closely at what? God's law. Now, of course, we don't have time this morning to go through a thorough study, but let's turn back to Deuteronomy. Since this is Moses' re-giving of the law to Israel as they are entering the promised land. And we can go back to Deuteronomy chapter 1, when God speaks to Israel through Moses, reminding them of their history. And here in verses 16 and 18, he summarizes how they are to live as his people in appointing tribal leaders over them. So again, Deuteronomy 1, verses 16 to 18. God says to them, Then I commanded your judges at that time, saying, Hear the cases between your brethren, and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the stranger who is with him. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid in any man's presence, for the judgment is God's. The case that is too hard for you bring to me, and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all the things which you should do. So they were to judge righteously without partiality in our judgment. But now let's turn a little bit further. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 to 18, to consider what God says about himself to Israel and the law. So Deuteronomy 10, 12 to 18. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good? Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth and all that is in it. The Lord delighted only in your uh, the Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them and he chose their descendants after them you above all peoples as it is this day therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords the great God mighty and awesome who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe he administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger giving him food and clothing. So we have God as the one who administers justice with his people then following in their administration of justice without any partiality or favoritism. Or let's continue looking forward. Let's go to chapter 16. Deuteronomy 16, verses 18 and 20. Read, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates, which the Lord your God gives you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, nor take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. You shall follow what is altogether just, that you may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Well, let's go to chapter 23, verses 15 to 16, where we read of how they should treat escaped slaves. 
So Deuteronomy 23, verses 15 to 16. You shall not give back his master to his master, the slave who has escaped from his master to you. He may dwell with you in your midst, in the place which he chooses within one of your gates, where it seems best to him. You shall not oppress him. Well, what about the hired servants? Let's go to the next chapter, chapter 24, verses 14 to 15. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who is in your land within your gates. Each day you shall give him his wages and not let the sun go down on it, for he is poor and has set his heart on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord and it be sin to you. And then you can skip a verse and let's read then verses 17 and 18. You shall not pervert justice due to the stranger or the fatherless, nor take a widow's garment as a pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. Now, we come then in chapter 25, verse 1, and read how justice is to be carried out in their courts. Let's look there. If there is a dispute between men and they come to court, that the judges may judge them, and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. Uh, and then it continues on. Uh, we read of how this justice will be carried out in the courts. Right? It shall be the wicked deserves to be beaten, and the judge will cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence according to his guilt with a certain number of blows. And then later in this chapter, we read of treating people fairly and equally. Let's look at verses 13 through the end of the chapter of uh, of this chapter. So Genesis 13, or sorry, Deuteronomy <laughs> chapter 25, beginning with verse 13. You shall not have in your bag differing weights, a heavy and a light. You shall not have in your house differing measures, a large and a small. You shall have a perfect and just weight, a perfect and just measure that your days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things, all who behave unrighteously, are an abomination to the Lord your God. Are you starting to hear some themes from God's law as we consider His justice? And do you see how God's law reveals to Israel how they are to live as a righteous people doing justice towards those in their society? So we have considered the requirement of justice and the practice of judgment, but justice, but last, let's then consider the aspects of justice. And uh, philosophers and theologians have broken down the idea of justice in different ways, but there are two aspects of justice which are clearly revealed through God's law. So let's briefly consider each of them. First, there's retributive justice retributive justice, which is carrying out appropriate proportional punishment against the guilty for violating God's law in order to uphold God's righteousness. I know that's a longer definition, but I hope it's helpful. Let me say it again. Retributive justice is carrying out appropriate proportional punishment against the guilty for violating God's law in order to uphold his righteousness. 
So we sometimes speak of retribution as the required penalty for evil, right? And this is the idea here. Retributive justice, then, is most well-known through the lex talionis, which many of us know. It's Latin for law of retribution. It's an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, which God reveals in Genesis 9, 5 through 6, Exodus 21, 24, Leviticus 24, 20, and Deuteronomy 19, 21. So this is retributive justice. But then we also have restorative justice. Restorative justice. And here's a definition. Restorative justice is reversing the harm and loss of victims uh, when they have been wronged by those violating God's law through injustice or oppression. So again, it is the reversal of the harm and loss of victims when they have been wronged by those who violate God's law through injustice or oppression. Those guilty then must make restitution for their sins by restoring what has been harmed or lost through their crime. We also see this taught in God's law, and these two aspects of justice are then brought together. So let's turn to Leviticus chapter 24 and read verses 17 to 22 because here we again see through God's law both retributive justice and restorative justice so there we read beginning of verse 17 whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death and whoever kills an animal shall make it good animal for animal. If a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor as he has done, so shall it be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has caused disfigurement of a man, so shall it be done to him. And whoever kills an animal shall restore it. But whoever kills a man shall be put to death. You shall have the same law for the stranger and for one from your own country. For I am the Lord your God. So, we see retributive justice here through the lex talionis, right? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Death here is the punishment for murder. Disfigurement is the punishment for causing disfigurement. But what else is required to do justice and to make good the wrong that was committed against someone? Well, animal is given to replace an animal. And whoever kills... An animal must restore it. So don't miss that this is true then, not only for those Israelites who are in their own country, but also for who? For the strangers who are living among them. There's equality before the law among them all. And for justice to be accomplished, both retributive and restorative justice are necessary. So we considered the calling of Israel and the social ethics of Israel. But finally, let's quickly look at the failure of Israel. Throughout the Old Testament, how does Israel do in living as a righteous and just people? The truth is Israel was not the righteous and just people that God had called them to be through his covenants. And they too, like the nations around them, showed favoritism and partiality. They too practiced injustice and oppression. This is why God then sent prophets to his people who would warn Israel of his judgment 
for this disobedience to his law and who called them to repentance for their sins. For example, listen to the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 5, verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. And we read of the prophet Amos using similar words of condemnation towards Israel in Amos 5, chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, uh, when they are saying, when will the new moon be passed that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may trade weak, making the ephah small and the shekel large, falsifying the scales by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, even sell the bad wheat. So in Amos, they're condemned for using unjust scales to take advantage of the poor and needy. We can move to later in Israel's history where we read about the capital city of Jerusalem in Jeremiah 6, 6. For thus has the Lord of hosts said, cut down trees and build a mound against Jerusalem. This is the city to be punished. She is full of oppression in her midst. And then Jeremiah prophesies against Shalom, king of the southern kingdom of Judah in chapter 22, verse 13. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by injustice, who uses his neighbor's service without wages and gives him nothing for his work. And then in verse 17 of the same chapter, God says to King Shalom, Yet your eyes and your heart are for nothing but your covetousness, for shedding innocent blood and practicing oppression and violence. But not only had Israel's kings been unjust, so are their priests. So God later speaks of the priests in Malachi 2, verse 9. Therefore, I also have made you contemptible and base before all the people, because you have not kept my ways, but have shown partiality in the law. Now, I could go on and on through the prophets. But what other conclusion can we come to? Israel proved not to be the righteous and just nation that God had called them to be. And this is why, after their stubborn refusal to repent of their sins, they did come under the judgment of God. God first used the Assyrian Empire against the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC. And then God later used the Babylonian Empire to judge the southern kingdom of Judah in 586 BC. So they were cast out of the promised land under the covenant curse of God. Well, how then were God's people supposed to live while exiles in a foreign land? We have one more passage to turn to this morning. Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29, verses 4 to 7. Because in these verses, God shows them and says to them how they are to live while they're in the captivity of Babylon. So let's read together here. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, so they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished." 
and seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace, you will have peace. So as they live as exiles, God's people are called to seek the peace of the city where God has caused them to live and pray to the Lord for it. They are to seek the good of the people where they are living until the Lord will restore them as his people. Well, this then was a quick overview and running through the Old Testament. But as we reach the end of the Old Testament, we find it is God himself who must be the one to bring righteousness and justice to the world. And it is God who is the one who will end oppression. We'll return to this hope in our next class together. Uh, but let's have a time for us to discuss here this morning.